I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, and that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we dare our as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Der Shechai Experiment, the show where we dig through the Bible and rather than trying to define it through the lenses of good versus evil, we instead try to look at the scriptures through the lens of life versus death. This week we're continuing the story of Noah and the cycle that it reveals to us of God's relationship to this world and to the people in the world. As we look through this week, we will notice that the pattern that has been developing over the past couple weeks takes a dark step. It started kind of dark, but then it looks like there was a hope coming, the, the new creation, the covenant, sacrifice, this new relationship building exercise. But as we continue, we're going to notice that the relationship falls apart at this point. There's, there's an issue that goes on. There's something that happens that damages the relationship between two of the characters in the story. And that damaged relationship then leads to some really dire circumstances in next week's episode. But for this week, let's just kind of go back through what has happened so far, what we've examined up to this point, the previous parts of these, this pattern. So we had the judgment occur. In that judgment, the waters above and the waters below were brought back together. The land and the sea were joined together so that the land was covered by the sea, and everything was destroyed. We read that violence and corruption covered the earth and that the entirety of man's thoughts and the entirety of man's ambition was sin. It was to act outside of relationship with God. And not just out of relationship, but contrary to his predetermined order that he had set in stone from the beginning. And from this chaos, God extended his grace to a single man, gave him instructions for life, and a way to survive this madness and this corruption that was to come. He had determined in his justice that the time had come to judge all of the earth and all who were in it, and to return man's corruption back upon the men of the earth. So he gave Noah these instructions, and by doing so, he was extending grace to Noah, and Noah was forced to respond through obedience. His response to grace was obedience, and that's one of the really important things that we need to we need to see and we need to understand that all of Scripture speaks of. Grace is extended to man, but it's man's responsibility to respond with, with obedience. If you don't respond with obedience, the next step is not going to happen, and judgment comes. And when judgment comes, the one who responds in obedience will have his way through that judgment. But the one who doesn't respond in obedience will end up just like everyone else, covered in the waters of chaos, drowned by the flood. And so and that was what happened. The, the pattern ended, or that piece of the pattern ended with the world in a state of tohu vavohu, or the, as we read in Genesis 1, the world being formless and void, the state of chaotic uncreation. Then starting in Genesis chapter 8, we read of the creation being anewed, and it began with the wind or spirit over the waters, splitting the waters, creating a dry place for man to live. The waters above and below once again being separated. The exact same creation that had occurred in Genesis 1 was once again occurring here in Genesis 8. At the end of chapter 8, we read of night and day and summer and winter, those times and seasons that were instituted back in Genesis 1, that those will never fail again from the earth. And this picture of new creation, it's one that all mankind can participate in at this point. We've all been extended the grace of God through Yeshua, and we can all take his sacrifice and in so doing, create an ark for ourselves to pass through the judgment by acting in obedience to Yeshua. Chapter 9, we read then of new covenant being founded, new relationship, 
the, the relationship that had been damaged between God and man being refounded and reformed, forged anew. And part of that covenant is the sacrifice. Those, those two go hand in hand. Covenant and sacrifice are completely inseparable. We'll run into a lot of topics like that as we continue through scripture. A couple of things that we read in chapter nine, the command to be fruitful and multiply was repeated. Dominion was once again given to man, slightly different relationship this time rather than simply ruling over the animals. The fear of man will be in the animals. A diet was set for man once again. And the precious nature of man was stated once again, created in the image of God. And we kind of speculated a little bit on what that nature might be last week. And we'll talk about that a little bit more next week as we approach the Tower of Babel. Then we read of the one-way covenant that God created with man. The, the rainbow covenant, the covenant of the flood, uh, whatever you want to term it. The name we give it really doesn't matter. But this covenant is a one-way covenant. It's God saying that he will promise never again to do something. Or promising alternatively, like we're going to read later in Genesis 15, promising to do something unilaterally. Making a promise that's fully dependent on him. That's not dependent on anything we can do. And that promise that we read in Genesis 9 was never again to destroy all life on earth through the flood waters. Doing this, uh, God proved a point when he destroyed mankind in the waters of the flood. And the point was is that sin in the earth, it's not a right kind of people problem. And that's something that so many of us need to really grasp hold of and really reflect on. It's not a right kind of people problem. It's a people problem, solely based in the existence of humanity. And it's built into our our flesh. Once Adam and Eve partook of the fruit that was forbidden from them, it became a part of humanity, part of the human existence, to exist in this state of sinfulness, of separation from God. Attempting to be like God, we ended up separating ourselves from God. So this week, we will continue the Noah cycle, and we'll continue it from this point of this new creation's founded relationship as whole, and we can begin again. And this is where we begin to see that the issue isn't just the right kind of people problem. The issue is a people problem, because those who were brought through the waters of the flood those who were counted as righteous. Beginning here, some really weird things go on, some terrible things go on, and it begins to, once again, cause a downward spiral into depravity, if you will. So let's read the Parsha, and then we'll come back and discuss it, because there's a topic that is introduced here that I think is so vitally important to our understanding of Scripture. And then there's another topic that's spoken on here that is so very vital to our own acting out of Scripture in the world. So let's read the Bible and then talk about what it can say to us. Genesis 9, beginning in verse 18, all the way through the end of chapter 10. And the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Chem, and Yafet. And Chem was the father of Canaan. And these were the sons of Noah, and all the earth was overspread from them. And Noah, a man of the soil, began and planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine, and was drunk, and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brothers outside. So Shem and Yephet took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. But their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine, and he knew that his younger son had done to him. And he said, Cursed is Canaan, let him become a servant of servants to his brother. And he said, Blessed be Hashem, the Elohim of Shem, and let Canaan become his servant. And let Elohim enlarge Yafet, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. And let Canaan become his servant. And Noah lived after the flood three hundred and fifty years. So all the days of Noah were nine hundred and fifty years, and he died. And this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Yafet. And sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Yafet, Gomer, and Magog, and Madi, and Yavan, and Tuval, and Meshech, and Tiras. And the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, and Rifat, and Togarma. And the sons of Yavan, Elisha, and Tarshish, and Kitim, and Dodanim. From these the coastland peoples of the nations were separated into their lands, 
everyone according to his language, according to their clans, into their nations. And the sons of Ham, Cush, and Mitzrayim, and Put, and Kenan. And the sons of Cush, Seva, and Chavelah, and Sabta, and Ramah, and Sabtecha, and the sons of Ramah, Sheva, and Dedan. And Cush brought forth Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before Hashem. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before Hashem. And the beginning of his reign was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalneh, from the land of Shinar. From that land he went to Ashur, and built Nineveh, and Rechavot, Ir, and Kelach, and Resen between Nineveh and Kelach, the great city. And Mitraim brought forth Ludim, and Anamim, and Lehavim, and Natuchim, and Patrusim, and Kalsuchim, from whom came the Philistines, and Kaftorim, and Canaan brought forth Zidon, his firstborn, and Chet, and the Yevusite, and the Amorite, and the Girgashite, and the Chayavite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arvadite, and the Semarite, and the Hamatite, and afterward the clans of the Canaanites were spread abroad. And the border of the Canaan was from Zidon, as you go towards Gerar, as far as Azah, as you go towards Sedam and Amora, and Adba and Savoyim, as far as Lasha. These were the sons of Ham, according to their clans, according to their languages, in their land, and their nations. And also to Shem, the father of all the children of Ever, the brother of Yefet, the elder children, were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Ashur, Aparchshad, Lud, and Aram. And the sons of Aram, Utz, Chul, and Geter, and Mash. And Aparchshad brought forth Shelach, and Shelach brought forth Ever. And to Ever were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, and in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Yoktan. And Yoktan brought forth Amodad, and Shelef, and Chatzarmavet, and Yerach, and Hadoram, and Uzal, and Dikla, and Oval, and Avamiel, and Sheva, and Ophir, and Chavilah, and Yovav. All these were the sons of Yoktan, and their dwelling place was from Mesha, as you go towards Sephar, a mountain of the east. These were the sons of Shem, according to their clans, according to their languages, and their lands, according to their nations. These were the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their generations, in their nations. And from these nations were divided on the earth after the flood. So what? What an odd story, and then a boring list. It's almost as if Genesis 5 and 6 that we went through a couple weeks ago was being reversed. We've got the really short snippet of a story, and this boring genealogy that just goes on and on and on with so many hard-to-pronounce names that really, really don't mean anything to me, right? How can we find anything in it that's, that's worthwhile? So this story begins with Noah. He plants a vineyard. First of all, we need to recognize that that's pointing us back to Genesis 2. Because Adam was placed in the garden. And what was his purpose in the garden? To be a gardener. So... Noah is placed in the earth. His first role, his first thing that we read about is him acting in the role of a gardener to work the ground, right? He plants a vineyard. And then the Noah partakes of the fruit of the garden in a way that's unwise and advisable. And that partaking of the fruit leads to a discovery of nakedness in Noah. Again, we're seeing these these connections in order from the previous section from Genesis 3, in fact, one of the foundational chapters of Scripture. And the entire story of Noah from beginning to end is a repeat of Genesis 1 through 5, right? The creation, the covenant, the, the relationship building, and then this broken relationship through partaking of the fruit in the garden. And what we'll see next week is it still continues on in a culmination of a building of a city by the line that is cursed and exiled. The links in these, the, the ways that you could overlay the story of Noah over the story of Genesis is, is absolutely amazing. So while on a narrative level, there's a lot of overlap in these stories, the specifics of the story lead us down some interesting paths. This particular story of Noah in his tent, and what exactly happens in the tent? This is a this is a thought that has confounded people. There's been so many different speculations. 
as I have read through and studied this particular chapter in previous years and even this year while preparing for this, I read so many different commentaries of people saying, well, this is what happened and that was happening. I read everything from Noah was in a trance-like state communing with God and Ham walked in on him while he was in this trance-like state and, you know, that was, that was what happened in the tent. To Noah and his wife were being intimate and Ham walked in and saw them in their intimate moments. To Ham himself went in and fathered Canaan with his mother. Two, <laughs> Ham went in and had relations with his father. All of these are possibilities, and there's a bunch more that I've read of, of what the possibilities are of what happened in the tent. And the fact of the matter is, the story doesn't give us any specifics. It doesn't tell us what happened in the tent. And as I thought on that this year, I began to realize that that is the point of the story. The non-specifics, that's the moral of the story. Let me transition now into another topic that has bearing on this, and then we will come back and we'll dig into that, and I'll kind of explain why I make that statement. When we read Scripture, we need to look at the context of Scripture, right? We, we've already talked about how the Bible was not written to our culture. It's not a book that was written to us. It was a book that was written for us. We understand that culture and, and differences in thought and opinion and words and language and all of these social underpinnings and so on and so they influenced the authors of Scripture to put certain things on the page and to, to leave other things out. The concept that is essential for us to understand here is that the Bible wasn't written to a society that thinks in a paradigm of guilt and innocence like we do. It's a document that's written to a society that's based on an honor-shame culture. We've got to understand this, and we've got to be able to, in many ways, to discard our own guilt and innocence mindset when we look at the pages of Scripture, because the honor-shame dynamic in Scripture is so fast. It's everywhere. It's all over the pages of Scripture. There are some amazing books out there, but if you want a really good intro on this, I'm going to put a link in the description to a book by Tyler Don Rosenquist. It's a, it's a homeschooling book. I've used it for my children to teach them about honor and shame. Awesome, awesome resource. It, it really begins to introduce this idea and to explain the idea of honor shame. There's also a blog out there called honorshame.com. It'll be in the description as well. Uh, go there. There's a lot of great articles and resources from a missionary who's gone to other cultures and has dealt with this honor-shame dynamic in a personal level and then has created what he calls the 3D gospel, three-dimensional gospel. And why three dimensions? Well, you've got three different paradigms in our world. Our society is one that's built on guilt and innocence. You're guilty or you're innocent. That's what sets your status in society. If you're innocent, then you're free to do what you want. If you're guilty, then there is a lower status that's given to you by society. Second one is a power-fear dynamic. And then there's a honor-shame dynamic. So our society, the guilt-innocent society. Guilt-innocent societies tend to be extremely individualistic societies. Individuals who break the law are guilty. We seek justice or forgiveness to rectify whatever wrongs have occurred. The fact of the matter is, is guilt-innocence cultures were extremely rare, especially in the course of history. Extremely rare cultures. A set of cultural psychologists published a paper in 2010 in which innocence and guilt cultures were called WEIRD. WEIRD being an acronym. W, Western. E, Educated. I, Industrialized. R, Rich. And D, Democratic. I think you can see how those descriptive words will help us to see that these societies, guilt and innocence, has not existed for a very long time. There's very few societies that actually live up to all of those. In fact, today, North America, Australia, most of Europe, and the case could be made for Argentina or South Africa, those are really the only guilt and innocence societies in the world today. I happen to live in North America. I live in a guilt-innocence society. 
very small portions of Central and Sub-Africa today still operate in a power-fear dynamic. And, but that's a dynamic that has existed all through Scripture, and even very recently. Power and fear is a very pervasive dynamic throughout much of human history. Many of our ancient Central and Native American cultures, as well as Sub-Saharan African cultures, operated under this paradigm. These cultures have, for the most part, faded from the global stage. Power-fear cultures, they tend to be very tribal, and the majority of their lives of the people who live in these cultures are lived in fear of those in power. Interestingly enough, though, the leaders in these countries, the ones with the power, they also live in fear of the people, which is why they exert the power. The entire culture is, is just saturated in this fear. It causes some to exert power over others. Power and fear dynamic is extremely fragile because of this, because everybody's constantly in fear. And when the, the people decide to rise up and exert their power over the leaders that have been holding them down, they tend to overthrow their government. And that fragility makes these countries very unstable, whether it be through political upheaval or through military conquest. A power-fear culture is very easy to take over through military conquest. The third type of culture is the honor-shame culture. And these cultures tend to be collectivistic, based on group identity, group expectations. And those who don't fulfill the group expectations or proper action, those who don't uphold some sort of social ideal, regardless of what it is, are shamed. And in order to regain their honor, they have to accomplish some sort of honor-retrieving feat um, to remove the shame from themselves or, as happens in many cases, to remove the shameful person from their midst. Honor-shame cultures, it's not so much about what you've done so much as who you're in relationship with, about who you know. And it's about how much honor you've accrued to yourself, because in honor-shame cultures, they tend to have a zero-sum game of honor. In order to gain honor for yourself, you have to take it from someone else. Honor and shame is very much based on relationship and accomplishments, status, rather than any kind of knowledge or innocence or guilt or anything like that. And much of the world today still operates under the honor-shame dynamic. The Middle East, nearly all of Asia, India, Eastern Europe, Northern Africa, the majority of South America, they all operate on this, this dynamic. And it's vitally important for us to understand honor-shame cultures because so much of the world operates on it. If you want to operate in this world, you need to understand honor-shame. But it also, if you want to understand scripture, you need to have a, an elementary understanding of honor and shame. That's why honor killings occur in the Middle East. We don't understand it. Our guilt-innocent society says, but, but the woman who was raped isn't, she's not guilty. She's the victim. In an honor-shame culture, it's her being connected to me in relationship brings shame upon me and upon my family. And the only way we can retrieve our honor or regain our honor is to remove that shame from our midst. Such a different dynamic. We condemn it, but it's a social norm. It's something that's existed for millennia. It's something that's existed since the founding of the earth, in fact. All of scripture is, is written to that honor-shame dynamic. And so understanding this can help us to understand a little bit more about what's going on in the story of Noah, I think. So what is it that's happening in the story of Noah? Well, there's a difference in the honor-shame between guilt, sin, and shame, being shamed before someone. And shame is something that makes a person vulnerable. And all through scripture, honor-shame cultures as a whole, nakedness is shameful. Okay? It's not shameful when practiced within its proper context, a marital sexual union, using the restroom in private. In those instances, nakedness, being uncovered in the presence of others, doesn't lead to shame. Only in those very few instances. Nakedness in public was something that's very shameful. Nakedness all throughout scripture is a euphemism to describe this vulnerability. Some examples of that in Genesis 42.12. Joseph's brothers are coming down to get grain in Egypt, and Joseph is still hiding behind his, his identity as the vizier of Egypt. 
and he accuses his brothers of coming and spying out the nakedness of Egypt to scout out the, the weaknesses in their defenses to in some way exploit them. In ancient cultures, to have a city or a country that was defenseless was a shame that was to be exploited by others. That was the expectation. Those with honor in such societies would subjugate the shameful nation and take them over in order to gain more honor for themselves. Other times, people with honor would seek to destroy anyone with more honor than themselves. First Samuel is a great example of this with King Saul. King Saul, the king, the one who should have the most honor, noticed that the people began to honor David. They were raising him up with their song. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. They were giving David a higher honor. And so what is Saul's response? His response is, I got to get rid of that guy. I'm the king. The honor belongs to me. If he keeps the honor, my family's cut off. So he recognizes that David is, in the eyes of the people, becoming more honorable than the king. And Jonathan, Saul's own son, befriends David. And then he prevents Saul from being able to kill David. He prevents Saul from regaining his family honor. And in 1 Samuel 20, verse 30, Saul actually uses the idea of nakedness to rebuke Jonathan. They've had this feast. David has been missing for a few days. Saul asks Jonathan, hey, where's David at? And Jonathan says, oh, well, David had this feast in Bethlehem. He went to be with his family, and he's just not around. And Saul, in a fit of rage, says, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? You see, in the honor-shame cultures, the social dynamic of family is central to all other. It is the core of everything. And the fact that Jonathan was choosing someone outside of his family, someone with more honor even, uh, was bringing disgrace upon Saul. It was adding to his own shame. There's an old Arab Bedouin saying, and it goes like this. It says, I against my brothers. I and my brothers against my cousins. I and my brothers and my cousins against the world. The idea being that everyone is looking out for themselves, but when there's a enemy outside, you band together with those that you are still operating against to gain the status for yourself. Everyone looking out for their own interest first, then their family interest, then their blood relative interest, extended family, and everyone else's last. It was the father, the patriarch of the family in honor-shame cultures that has the most honor. And so, at times, family members would act against each other in order to gain the honor of the father upon themselves and bring shame upon another. When this type of action is taken against the patriarch of the family by one of his sons, we can recognize that as an attempted coup, an attempt to take over the family to become the new patriarch, to raise himself in honor and to shame his father to the point where he then becomes the, the leader of the family. And we see this in several cases when Reuben sleeps with Jacob's concubine. That's exactly what's going on. He's attempting to take his father's honor and he's attempting to elevate himself to the place of the patriarch. Same thing with Abimelech and, and King David when he takes over the city and David is driven out. And Abimelech then takes David's wives and sleeps with them in public. He is attempting a coup, very physically attempting the coup, and he's culminating that by sleeping with his father's wives in order to gain the honor from his father and bring it to himself. This dynamic of honor, shame, as I said, it's, it's everywhere in Scripture. Usually in the cases of the son taking over the father's place or attempting to supplant the father, it occurs right after a weakness is found in the father. In the case of Jacob, it was just after Rachel's death. Just after her death, he takes his opportunity and sleeps with his father's concubine. And the same thing with Absalom and David. It's after Amnon, David's son, rapes his sister Tamar. After that occurs, then Absalom kills Amnon, and David is distraught, and weakness has been found in him that he's not going to uphold the honor of his his daughter, who was shamed. And we read through scripture that exploiting the shame of another is 
actually contrary to the law of love, the law that applies to all mankind, the, the law that is central to the Torah, that's central to the New Testament, that's central to Yeshua's teachings. As we discussed a few weeks ago, when God acts in judgment of his people, he gives them the fullest measure of the sins that they themselves have perpetrated. We see this in another story, in the story of Hosea. Hosea was told by God to marry a prostitute, someone who goes out and reveals her nakedness to everyone. And this is a, this is a picture, it's a, it's a metaphor that God is asking to be lived out in real life, which is something that God asks his prophets to do regularly, to, to live out a metaphor in public so that people can see visually what's going on. And Hosea was asked to live out the metaphor of Israel, the harlot, the nation, going out and giving herself to other gods, but married to God. And so Hosea takes on the role of God and Gomer takes on the role of Israel. And if you read Hosea 1 through 2, you'll see that the, the idea of nakedness and shame and being shamed before all of your suitors and so on and so forth, your nakedness being revealed in public, is very central to the entire, to the first part of the book of Hosea. Uh, also, Nahum 3.5 talks about the same idea of Israel's nakedness being revealed in front of the nations, their shame being revealed for others. Because the fact is that Israel had acted shamefully in their covenant with God. And so God gave them up, just as in Noah, where God gives the people what they ask for. He gives them up to their shame. They loved the gods of Assyria. They loved the gods of Babylon. And so it's as if God says, if you wish to betray our covenant with going to these other gods, these other suitors, these johns, if you will, then go ahead, reap the bounty of it. See if they care for you like I do. And we read in God's declaration against Babylon in Isaiah 47, 1-7, in verse 3 of that passage, God declares that Babylon's own nakedness will be uncovered because when they took Israel in, they treated him harshly. Well, what do you expect from a guy who goes to prostitutes, right? Well, <laughs> you expect him to act and to continue to shame the one who their relationship began in shame. So in the framework of the story of Hosea, it's as if Gomer, Israel, has been beaten by the John, Babylon. And so Hosea, God, is coming back in and stealing her back. It's that story of the knight in shining armor coming in and saving the damsel in distress from the evil person that has subjugated her, that has fooled her into thinking that he was what was good for her, who duped her into following him, and then when she did, he sprung a trap and made her slaves. You get the idea. It's a story, it's a metaphor. And shame being so central to the ways of the thoughts of those who lived in the story of the Bible, that it really didn't need any explanation. It was simply the way things were. And that's why the Bible doesn't say, well, just calm down, we're going to explain shame to you and honor to you, and we're going to help you to understand this. Because it was written to us. It was written to people steeped in this culture. And so that's what we read here. Noah, through an indulgence, found himself in a shameful position. He didn't sin. He did nothing that was inherently wrong. He was in his tent. He was naked in his tent, supposedly the safe space. And that safe space was then invaded by his son, and his shame was revealed to his son. Now that in itself, I don't think, is, is necessarily what was wrong. That's not necessarily a bad thing. People will sometimes stumble in on you while you're in a shameful or vulnerable or compromising position, right? It's bound to happen when you live with people. Sometimes you people walk in on you while you're in the restroom. Sometimes people barge into your safe space and don't knock. It's a fact of life. I don't think that was the problem. I don't think that's why Ham was cursed. Or, sorry, why Canaan was cursed. I don't think he was cursed because he witnessed his father's shame. I think he was cursed because he told others about it. Catch that. He went outside of the tent and declared Noah's shame to his brothers. I think that's the issue that's at stake here. 
And scripture speaks on this topic in several ways. The same type of thing that happens in another of those very confusing stories. In 2 Kings, Elijah just been taken to heaven. Elisha is now granted the mantle of authority. Elisha goes back to Jericho. He heals a poison well, and then he heads up to Bethel. On his way, Elijah is then shamed by some youths of the city in 2 Kings 2, 23-24. And they call out, Baldy! Baldy! And they're mocking him because of his shame. His head is uncovered, which is a shameful thing. It's not sin. It's not wrong. It's not something that we should really even judge a person for, but it was a shameful state of affairs in ancient Israel. So Elisha, in return, he curses these youths. And some bears come out of nowhere and maul 42 of them. We look at that in our guilt and innocence society and go, oh, how horrible. These 42 kids, all they were doing was making fun of an old man and they get death? In an honor-shame society? Yes! That's exactly what happens in an honor-shame society. Elisha had suffered from that culturally shameful condition of baldness, his naked and vulnerable head. And some youths, if we read the story, they're not like three and four-year-olds, they're teenagers. They're early teens. Apparently, an awful lot of them were up there mocking him for it and declaring his shame to the world. And in response, he did the same thing that Noah did. He cursed him for it. Just as Noah calls down the curse on Canaan. And to our sensibilities and guilt and innocence, this seems so difficult for us to, to comprehend, understand. But to a honor-shame culture, this is like, yeah, uh, duh. What else are you going to do? Another place that we read of it, Proverbs 25, 9-10, says, Plead your case with your neighbor himself, and do not disclose the secret of another, lest he who hears it put you to shame, and your evil report turn not back. Don't reveal the secret shame of another, even if doing so will solve some sort of dispute that you have with your neighbor. You cannot drag someone else into your disputes. You cannot take your private knowledge that you know of someone and start spreading it everywhere, even if it's true. That's not how people of Scripture are to act. There's another place that we hear of it. Leviticus 19, one of those central chapters on holiness. In fact, right before we get to the second part of the most important command, as Yeshua said, in Leviticus 19, 16-18, it says, Do not go slandering among your people. Do not stand against the blood of your neighbor. I am Hashem. Do not hate your brother in your heart. Reprove your neighbor for certain, and bear no sin because of him. Do not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the children of your people. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Hashem. Right here, leading up to what Yeshua calls the second most important command, we read that slander and gossip and sharing the secrets of another is perhaps one of the most evil things that a person can do to another. It is the anathema of love. It is the exact opposite of love. If you have a problem with someone, go to that person and talk to them about your problem. Don't go sharing your secret shame that you know about with others in order to make yourself feel better. Noah was caught in a shameful position. What was his position? My question is, why do we want to know that? I don't want to be responsible for what happened in that tent. It won't solve any issue in my own life. It's only curiosity to hear of the shame of another that gets me to question what happened in Noah's tent. The point of the matter is, the author stays outside the tent. The author doesn't go into the tent. The author could have gone into the tent and explained everything that occurred in there and solved all of our questions, but he doesn't. The story is written to keep us outside the tent. And so all of these people trying to decide what is, what happened, what caused it, that's the point. We are not meant to know. It's our own sick curiosity. And if we really want to know what happened in there, perhaps we need to start examining our own hearts for <laughs> this love of gossip, 
this love of storytelling of what other people have done wrong. Noah didn't do anything wrong. He got drunk. Yeah, it's a not an ideal situation, not something that a person really should do, okay? But he didn't sin. He didn't do anything wrong. He was in his safe space, doing something that he enjoyed, enjoying the bounty of the land that God had given. Ham, on the other hand, Ham took the story of shame and gossiped about it. He revealed his father's shame, his father's vulnerability to the world, to those who had no need of knowing the specifics. And how does Shem and Japheth react? Shem and Japheth, as it's translated into English, how did they react? They reacted to restore the honor of their father without placing even more shame upon him. They walked in backwards so that they didn't see his shame. They covered him so that no one else could see his shame. They acted in the way of love. They gave clothing to Noah. All through scripture, the symbol of giving clothing to another is a symbol of bestowing honor upon someone. We read of it several times. I'm only going to pick out two real quick. Ezekiel 16, 8 through 11. It's this metaphor of Israel as this woman who's been raised by the world, who God sees and uh, passes over at the beginning, but then comes back and sees that it's time for her to bear fruit. And so he then, starting in verse 8, we read, And again I passed by you and looked upon you and saw that your time was the time of carnal love. And I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. And I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you. And you became mine, declares the Master Hashem. And I washed you in water, and I washed off your blood, and I anointed you with oil, and I dressed you in embroidered work, and gave you sandals of leather, and I wrapped you in fine linen, and covered you with silk, and I adorned you with ornaments, and I put bracelets on your wrists, and a chain on your neck, and it goes on to describe how Israel, even after receiving all of these honor from God, they betray him, and they go and they sleep with the Johns that we read of in Hosea. Another place that talks about this is in Revelation 3, 17-19. Speaking to one of the seven churches, Yeshua says, Because you say, Rich I am, and I am made rich, and need none at all, and do not know that you are wretched and pitiable, and poor and blind and naked. And I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you become rich, and white garments so that you become dressed, so that the shame of your nakedness might not be shown and anoint your eyes with ointment so that you see. As many as I love, I reprove and discipline. So be ardent and repent. Repentance is being clothed in white linen. Hmm. That's an interesting idea, and it's something that we will actually talk about quite a bit later when we get into Exodus and like the priestly garments and all the, the talk of clothing that goes on there. So if we go back to Hosea 2, previously we read the grain, wine, wool, and linen that had acted as a covering for Israel's nakedness had been removed, and Israel had been chased off after her lovers when they had walked away. So if we pick up where we left off, Hosea 2, 14-20, we then read of God restoring the shame of Israel by providing new coverings for her nakedness. I recommend read those chapters, chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Hosea. Read those with this honor-shame dynamic in mind, with this nakedness and being clothed and the giving of clothing and so on and so forth, and in your head, actively in your head, looking at those those chapters. It's so vastly profound what's going on there, the, the picture that God is providing to Israel. God promised Israel through the story of Hosea that even after they were taken into exile, that he would come and he would rescue her from that abusive John. He would take Israel and then enter into a wilderness with her and reform that broken relationship, rekindle the fire with his bride away from the prying eyes of others, not something to be done in front of in public shamefully. He would return to her the bounty that she had once experienced, and that she would once again have her nakedness, her shame, covered. He would enter into a covenant with Israel, and with the beasts of the field and the bird of the heaven and the creeping creatures. There in Hosea. Where have we heard that before? 
last chapter. Actually, earlier this chapter. God makes the same kind of covenant that he wouldn't destroy the earth with water. And then he hung his bow in the heaven, his weapon, his pointed up upwards away from mankind as a symbol of this covenant. And here in Hosea, we read of a new covenant being established. And in this covenant, we will hand our weapons up. We'll be done with war. After, he, after God comes and redeems us from the nations and returns us from our exile. Once again, the, the new creation after the flood is connected to the new creation of Revelation 21, uh, being the bride, the covenant. No more war, no more death, true peace and safety once more. We see these ideas reflected all through Scripture. They're not one-off instances. But the Noah cycle doesn't end here. It continues to the Tower of Babel. And once again, God will judge the world, and a single righteous man will be rescued from the midst of that judgment. But here, though, here is one place that each one of us can work to escape the cycle, if you will. We can work to remove or to heal the shame that others feel. As long as people feel shame from others or even from themselves, this cycle, it'll continue. It'll perpetuate. Fortunately for us, the means of shame removal has been accomplished for us. This cycle describes new creation with the idea of sacrifice and covenant intertwined. We live in an era where there is only one sacrifice necessary for that covenant, to be entered into that covenant. And when you do, your shame is gone. All of these, the sacrifice, the covenant, the removal of shame, occurred through the person of Yeshua, our Messiah. Hebrews 12, 1-2 says, We too then, having so great a cloud of witnesses all around us, let us lay aside every weight, that shame, and the sin which so easily entangled us. And let us run with endurance the race set before us. It's describing this freedom of having all of those things that are weighing you down just lifted from you, being free and fresh. Looking to the Prince and the Perfector of our faith, Yeshua, who for the joy that was set before him endured the stake having despised the shame of the cross. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12 is describing there that Yeshua took our shame in himself. He went through the most shameful punishment that could possibly be prescribed in the first century. Crucifixion is not a pretty punishment, and it's very public. And he despised that shame. How to we, the weights that hold us down, hold us back, the shame that we feel inside for things that we've done, for our nakedness, our vulnerability, whatever, being revealed to the world. That's been taken by him. We, we're free now. We're weightless and we can run this race. And we can run it as long as we keep looking at him, the perfecter, the prince of our faith. In the shame of the cross, he became shame. Galatians 3.13 says it this way, A Messiah redeemed us from the curse of the Torah, having become the curse for us. For it has been written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. He redeemed us from the curse, the shame of disobedience to God. The curse of not respecting our covenant with God. Because the cross wasn't just punishment, it was shame. It was an instrument of shame. Every shame possible to man was exacted on the cross. Stripped of clothes, completely naked. All of the movies that we watch where he's got that loincloth on, nah, it didn't happen in Roman culture. Stripped of flesh, his, his blood showing, his muscle, his sinew. Stripped of all dignity. Forced to carry the instrument of his own death. And then hung naked before the world defecating on himself as he struggled to draw breath. It's not a pretty picture. It's the most complete humiliation possible. And he took that on himself willingly so that our shame, the, our little petty squabbles, those are nothing in comparison. He became our shame. He suffered that ultimate shame, the king of all creation reduced to the ultimate shame possible. 
for the sake of us. And in so doing, he called us to live that in our lives, to bear each other's shame, not to share each other's shame, not to spread it to others. And too many times, because we feel shame in ourselves, we then reveal the shame to others. We mistakenly believe that if we can shuffle this shame off onto another, then we can lighten our own load and live with our own shame. No more. We have to bear and take the shame of others. We have to identify with the shame and carry it for others. We can't allow the things that the world calls shameful to bother us. We too have to despise the shame of judgment from the world, even from many of those inside the church who are acting like the world, because we know that judgment from God is so much worse than any shame we can experience here on earth. If Ham had borne his father's shame rather than sharing his father's shame with his brothers, would he have been cursed? The world suffered, and it still continues to suffer from this curse. The descendants of Ham take on the role of the descendants of Cain in Genesis 4. Cain was cursed, right? His descendants founded cities and invented war. Well, what do we read in Genesis 10, 8 through 12? A descendant of Ham founds a city. It was great in war. Nimrod, he's following the pattern of Cain. He's, he's following the pattern of history, this pattern that's being revealed to us in these previous chapters, and it has been being retold again in these chapters. The cursed line then congregated. They gathered together right after command was given to fill the earth, be fruitful and multiply. They then decided, oh, let's all get together. If we pay even closer attention to this, we see that two of those nations that came from Nimrod, Assyria and Babylon, those are the two nations that are then later used to judge Israel, Assyria judging northern Israel, the kingdom of Israel, and Babylon used to judge the kingdom of Judah. In the end, the curse line was so full of self-pride that they work hard to make their name great. For Cain, it was Lemech. He sought to make his name great. I have killed a man for wounding me. Yes, I even have. if Cain is avenged sevenfold, I'll be avenged seventy-sevenfold. You know, he's, he's seeking to make himself great, to be well-known in the world. For Ham, it was Nimrod. Nimrod becomes the Lemech of the Cain, Cain story. If Ham had borne his father's shame, what would have happened? Well, the fact is, sin would have still existed. That's something that is in our human nature. It's in our human flesh. Someone else down the line would have eventually acted in a similar way to what happened here. There's only one thing that can fix the heart of man, and that is the New Covenant. In chapter 10, we read of what is commonly called the Table of Nations, 70 nations that came forth after the flood. In reality, this is likely simply the 70 nations that split from each other when the Tower of Babel fell in the next chapter. And these nations, only after the fall of this great city, they then scatter to all parts of the earth. And the Table of Nations sets for us the stage for the rest of Scripture, indeed, the rest of history. Ham, the cursed line, we get Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, Cush, Canaan, Philistia, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and more. So many of these perpetual enemies of Israel. Completely irredeemable, right? Completely cursed from the outset. No hope of escaping the curse of their ancestors, perpetually persecuting the line of Shem. Wrong. We read of many people throughout scriptures who enter into the covenant and worship practices with the God of Israel. In Exodus 12, we read of a mixed multitude coming out from Egypt, from Egypt, from the line of Ham. Caleb was a Kenizzite, the, the man from Judah who went to scout the land of Israel in the book of Numbers, he wasn't an Israelite. He wasn't a blood Jew, yet he represented Judah in that. And he was one of the two righteous. The only other one was Joshua, who then becomes the next leader. Naaman, the commander of an Assyrian army, has leprosy and comes and finds favor with Elisha. In the New Testament, believers begin to understand that being in covenant 
has nothing to do with bloodline, has nothing to do with nationality. And beginning in Acts 2, we read of people from Egypt, from Persia, from Libya, and more areas that were under the curse given by Noah, curse of Ham. In fact, we read that we are all under a curse. Not just Canaan, not just Cain, all mankind. Read Genesis 3. We've all been cursed. Because the fact is, when we compare ourselves to a holy and just God, we are ultimately shameful. We have nothing in ourselves that would recommend us to the God of the universe. We're all sons of Adam, and we don't know God. We're out of relationship with him, as relationship could be, because we live in exile still. So regardless of our station in life, Regardless of what we've done in our past, regardless of our money, our status, our fame, these things mean nothing when it comes to being found as honorable next to our Creator. Only one thing can give us that kind of honor. Only one can take our shame and bestow honor upon us in exchange. There's only one who can bring us into a right relationship with God, the one who took our sins and suffered that ultimate shame on the cross, the one who despised the shame of the cross. When you accept this, when you accept Yeshua and his sacrifice, and you identify with it, you become honorable before God. It's not all sunshine and roses. In that moment, you will become shameful to the world. From that moment on, those around you will attempt to shame you for something for which there is no shame. And it's a human condition to take our own shame and then to attempt to place it on others and to make them feel our shame, to seem less than us by shaming them, by passing it on. Hurt people hurt people, right? And so doing, we gain honor with those around us, those who are also of a low level of honor, those with a high level of shame. We seek to bring others into our circles, to bring others into our status, to help us to feel better. If we can surround ourselves by people who are equally shameful, then maybe we can find some pride in that. That's how the world works. We as uh, people of God, we have to become immune to that tactic. We have to always remember what is truly honorable and where our ultimate honor is to be found. And it's not found in the ways of this world. We have to learn to find our honor solely in relationship to the Most High God. The things of this world, and especially the standards of our society, they can hold it over us. You see, the story is a story of broken relationship. Last episode, relationship was formed, a covenant relationship and bond was formed. And already, one generation later, not even a generation, Noah does something Shameful, yes. Sin, no. He does something. Ham, on the other hand, rather than seeking to protect his relationship with his father, to protect that familial bond, seeks to elevate himself over his father by revealing his father's shame. Regardless of what that is, let's stop getting caught up in trying to speculate. What happened in the text? Doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. If God wanted you to know what happened in the tent, he'd have told you what happened in the tent. Let's stop focusing on that and let's focus on what happened outside of the tent. The slander, the shaming, the guilt, that must stop. It has to stop. And it's so rampant. Even in the body of Messiah, especially in the body of Messiah, gossip as prayer requests happens everywhere. We, we have to stop this. I'm begging, please. I'm pleading. Stop shaming your fellows. Even if you think they're in sin, stop shaming them. Go to them privately and discuss it with them, not with others. If someone has hurt you by shaming you, discuss it with the one causing the shame. If that doesn't work, then you start to expand the bounds of that. Then you bring others into it. Not many, just a few. And you 
attempt to rectify the situation. But this topic, this topic of honor, shame, so central to scripture, really, really check out those resources. Awesome resources, and it will really shift your focus, shift your idea of what's happening in so many places in scripture. You're going to miss a lot if you don't understand honor, shame cultures, and you're not going to be able to communicate in any way with people who do operate in those cultures still. So check out those resources, do some study. Try to shift your paradigm a little to understand honor and shame, to realize that your way is not the only way. Your way is not necessarily even the best way. So as we go through life, as you go through this upcoming week, try to learn more about the honor and shame. And as always, in all that you do, seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Derish Kai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to seeklifesc.com. That's seeklifesc.com. We'll see you again next time as we Derish Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.